Dear members and welcome guests of St. John's Lutheran Church. I suppose you're probably wondering what's up with Jesus calling people names. If you were here last Sunday for worship, you probably remember that you heard Jesus insinuate a desperate foreign woman was nothing more than a dog. How crude and how demeaning could he be? Had today's social media been in place, I'm sure that his cause would have taken a great plummet and certainly his popularity would have dropped off the charts. Of course, as we soon learned, the name calling had a constructive purpose and certainly had a positive ending. Well, in today's gospel, Jesus is at it again. Not so harsh this time. How would you like it if someone called you a rock? Rock isn't a very popular name these days. And I'm sure after this weekend, Harvey might fit into that category as well. Decades ago, some of you may remember a movie star who adopted the name Rock Hudson. He was a tall, handsome, heartthrob of the golden age of Hollywood. And then you might remember Chris Rock, a former NSL cast member. And with the fight this weekend, you might remember Rocky Marciano, the famous boxer, but beyond that, maybe you can think of some people named Rock, but there are very few. Well, in today's gospel lesson, we find that Jesus puts an asterisk beside that name Rock, because translated into Greek, that word is Petros, translated Peter, and ascribed to his lead disciple, Simon. And it's a name change that is as meaningful as it is significant. And then he tells this rock, Peter, to start get rolling because he needs him for a special building project that's going to change the world. Well, let's take a closer look at what led up to this and what has happened since. Certainly looking back, the faithful 12 had followed their rabbi. Probably they didn't know at this time that it was time for the final exam. I know school's just getting started, but for the disciples, it was time for the final exam. And to set this up, Jesus does something kind of unusual. He changes the venue and then takes them off on a three-day excursion up into the mountains, 60 miles to the north, to an area called Caesarea Philippi. This represented not only a change in location, but a more dramatic and radical change in culture as well. Because going from rural, conservative Galilee to this mega metropolis of Caesarea Philippi, 
could be somewhat compared to be going from Salt Lake City, Utah, to Las Vegas, Nevada. Certainly, the climate was entirely changed. Here was an ethnic, different ethnic group, a group that had already adopted the Greco-Roman style of culture, as well as the pantheon of gods and goddesses that went along with it. But it gets even worse. Then Jesus leads them outside the city into a valley that is shaded on one side by a huge rocky cliff. And into that cliff, people have chiseled notches. And in those notches, they set statues of the Greek gods. Pan, the god of pasture and shepherds, being one of the chief ones. And oh yes, then over here, a place where everybody avoids, there is a stream of water. And that stream is flowing directly into a huge cave. And into that cave, it just disappears. Local superstition is that that water is going all the way down to the underworld, all the way down to Hades, and that that cave is actually the gate to Hades. You want to stay out of there. Well, pilgrims and worshipers are now milling about, offering their sacrifices, performing their rituals. And, and don't you feel sorry for those poor disciples? <laughs> I'm sure their skin must have been crawling. Their angst level must have been going through the ceiling. This was so surreal. Could they just get out of there? And it is into this very context that Jesus springs his final exam. Only two questions. The first rather general. What do people think of me? Who do they say that I am? But. The second one gets very personal and very specific. Now, who do you say that I am? Well, we weren't there. We don't know exactly what happened. Maybe there was a long moment of silence where the disciples kind of looked at each other and said, you know, what's going on here? Maybe they got together as a group and came up with a group consensus or broke into subgroups and decided what each one of them thought. But the context suggests that what happened was immediate. It was divinely inspired. And it came directly from the leader of the disciples, Simon, who confidently and boldly in this scary context declared, you are the Messiah, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Wow. Well, with that, Simon just hit it out of the park. And Jesus is so, so satisfied with that answer that he now commissions a remarkable building project. Hear those words again. I tell you, you are Peter, 
Petros, a rock. And on this rock, on this Petros, I will build my church. And the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven so that whatever you bind on earth is bound in heaven and whatever is loosed on earth is loose in heaven. Now we ask, what did he mean by that? Well, opinion is divided and there are certainly two schools of thought. As we know, the church certainly was established and prospered but over the course of the centuries, as the Eastern centers of Christianity collapsed under the invasion of the Islamic hordes from the East, and in the West, the Teutonic hordes came down and robbed Rome of its culture, suddenly there was a real vacuum of leadership, both politically as well as spiritually. And it is into this vacuum that the only person available stepped in, and that was the Bishop of Rome. He did a very fine job for many years, that bishop. But eventually justification for extension of that power, of that office, was sought and finally found in this passage for today. It was asserted in today's text that Jesus not only appointed Peter as the official leader of the church, but even established in Peter an official office that would never end, that would be succeeded in apostolic succession throughout the centuries, and that the Bishop of Rome would have absolute power in the church. Well, the papacy as we know it did not really exist until actually the 12th century AD. It was then that Gregory VII established the Council of Cardinals to take papal elections out of the hands of the political leaders. And in his famous decree, the Dictatus contains the following assertions. Number one, the Pope is the universal bishop who has been placed by God over all other churchmen. Number two, no council can sit in judgment upon the Pope, nor does it have authority without papal approval. Number three, when the Pope speaks from his official chair, ex cathedra, we say, he is unable to make a mistake, unable to err. And fourthly, no book is authoritative until it has the official approval of the Pope. Well, that power and that position were certainly challenged during the Protestant Reformation. In 1537, the Lutheran reformers adopted as part of our confessional heritage a document entitled Treatise on the Power and Primacy of the Pope. And in it they unequivocally stated, as to the statement, 
On this rock I will build my church. It is certain that the church is not built on the authority of a man, but on the ministry of the confession which Peter made when he declared Jesus to be the Christ, the Son of God. Nor is this ministry valid of any individual's authority because of the word given by Christ. The rest of Holy Scripture certainly seems to support this interpretation. Not only Peter, but each of us who make that hard rock confession that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God, become little Peters, little rocks, whose mission it is now to build the Church of Christ on the rock of that confession. And fellow rocks, we need to get rolling. Jesus didn't say it would be easy. The setting for this commission is not the placid lakeside of Galilee, but the salty and combative arena of a counterculture that was Caesarea Philippi, or Washington, D.C., or Alexandria, or Springfield. It's true Jesus put a timetable on that announcement, told his disciples not to tell anyone. And elsewhere he said, until after the resurrection. <laughs> the resurrection has certainly come and gone. And that's all the more reason why we need to make that confession that Truly, Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And armed with the warmth of that gospel message, let us then take the keys of forgiveness he gives us and lock up those gates of Hades forever in a rock slide and continue to build the stepping stones that lead us to the celestial door of eternal life. Amen.